Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings at the U.S. Naval Institute. Today is Tuesday, May 2nd, 2023. Good to have you on board, as always, everybody. Today's show is brought to you by the members of the Naval Institute. Since 1873, going on 150 years this October, the members of the Naval Institute have been the foundation of everything we do, from Proceedings to Naval History Magazines to USNI News, to professional books and conferences and events. If you enjoy the show, ring the bell, subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and become a member of the Naval Institute at usni.org forward slash join. All right, let's get to our guest. Joining me from Northern Virginia today is Eric Wertheim. He's the author of the Naval Institute press book, Combat Fleets, and he's the, monthly, the, uh, the author of the monthly proceedings column of the same name. And uh, just before the show, we were chatting and Eric reminded me that uh, coming up in early 2024, he will be reaching the 30th year of publishing and of writing combat fleets for proceedings. So that is darn impressive. You got a lot more bylines than I ever had, Eric. Great to have you on the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yes, absolutely. I, uh, I started doing a history column for 10 years, uh, less called Less We Forget in 1994. And then in uh, 2004 took over the Combat Fleets column from uh, my predecessor, Dave Baker, and it's been uh, really fantastic just uh, studying the world's navies and, and being able to uh, coordinate and learn and, and bring that information to our members and, and to the Naval Institute team for, and the Navy and our allies. And you're also on the show today, not just because of those two, the book and, and the ongoing column, but also last year and this year, we asked you to write a special piece for the May International Navies issue uh, about NATO navies, sort of an update of going through all the 31 countries now. Uh, what are the major highlights, both in their operations and in their, particularly in their shipbuilding programs? Uh, you know, everything from, um, you know, the uh, the Belgian Navy, then Danish Navy, uh, all the way through to, you know, I guess Turkey and, um, uh, you know, at Finland, et cetera. So, um, uh, overall, I just want to start off by, you know, just recounting for a lot of uh, a lot of folks are aware that the U.S. Navy now for a while has been struggling to get back above the 300 ship mark. Um, are NATO navies actually getting bigger now, Eric? Um, and if if yes, if yes, which ones are growing fastest? So I think it's it's a, a difficult thing to look at the size because we're looking in a lot of cases at larger warships. So in terms of the sizes, it's not really fair. We have to really look at capabilities. And in terms of capabilities, they're certainly growing. There was a period after the Cold War and uh, with the focus on land war and the global war on terror where things were not going always in, in a positive direction for navies uh, and NATO navies in particular, um, where there was a focus on counterterrorism and counter piracy. Uh, but now um, in the past decade, and especially since the war in Ukraine, I think we're seeing a dramatic increase in uh, the return to the more core missions of anti-air, anti-sub, anti-surface um, that the Navy is doing and, and, and that the navies of, of NATO are doing. And of course, most importantly among that is situation awareness, maritime domain awareness, and the ability to stay linked and connected. So we're absolutely seeing growth in capabilities of those navies. And we're seeing some uh, across the board. We're seeing a lot of new uh, surface ships, a lot of uh, frigates, uh, air defense frigates, we're seeing, um, and, and multi-purpose frigates. 
uh, and we're seeing uh, a lot of uh, very large amphibious assault ships. Uh, we're seeing aircraft carriers and, and uh, amphibious assault ships that can act as aircraft carriers. Um, from you know the uh, recent United Kingdom acquisition of uh, the British Royal Navy has acquired two full deck aircraft carriers for um, F-35B uh, short takeoff vertical landing uh, strike fighters. Uh, the French are now beginning to look at a uh, new aircraft carrier uh, to replace their Charles de Gaulle. Italy has a, uh, a new ship uh, that is going to be the Trieste that will be um, getting uh, F-35Bs and, and working with that. Um, and as is uh, Turkey will not be operating, of course, F-35Bs due to their um, issues of acquiring the, the Russian air defense system. But instead, they're going to be looking at their aircraft carrier uh, an amphibious assault ship as more of a unmanned surface, uh, unmanned uh, uh, platform mothership. And so we're seeing this kind of growth. The other area, uh, another area of submarines that we're seeing, uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, navies acquire first class uh, submarines, really excellent uh, for coastal defense. Also, they're, uh, they're getting uh, air independent propulsion, AIP, which enables extended underwater time um, and really allows them to work seamlessly. And so we're, we're seeing a lot of these new capabilities come in. And, and I think that uh, if we look at that also, um, that's translating into, into really much more capable navies, but there are some gaps that we're seeing and, and, and the navies are trying to address that. The challenge of course is sometimes it can take years to, to correct those gaps that have grown over time. Oh, that's a great summary, Eric. And and yeah, you reminded me of there are some pretty impressive ships coming off the the construction ways in uh, in in European countries in NATO countries, right? That every yeah, that's a, a great point about aircraft carriers. Uh, even the, you know the Turks with that um, unmanned aircraft carrier uh, that's coming online. Uh, the Queen Elizabeth, which made the deployment last year, a year and a little a year and a half ago with uh, U.S. Marine Corps F-35Bs on board. And you got the, uh, the Italian-French FREM frigate program, which on which the Constellation class at the U.S. Navy's building now uh, is based on that hull, loosely, I think. Um, I'm hearing from some, but uh, that, that's a really good point. Um, uh, what NATO countries are incorporating the Aegis weapons systems? And, and are those uh, Aegis systems, as they come online, are they, are they all compatible with each other? Well, it's a very good question. So, of course, the Aegis, when we think of it right now, it's Phi-1, but the, the, the radar and combat system, um, the, of course, the United States operates it. Uh, Norway and Spain uh, also operate NATO um, platforms. And Canada is now um, going to be buying uh, 15 new air, uh, air defense frigates. And these are going to be very, very capable. They're based on a Type 26 frigate from the United Kingdom. Um, and they will be fitted with a Spy 7 Aegis, um, the Aegis um, uh, radar, and it's going to be cooperative engagement capability for the Canadian warships. So there, that enables the you know, real-time sensor netting um, for situational awareness, um, integrating fire control capability. That kind of thing is, uh, is, being, uh, is, is uh, what's being looked at for the future. Um, Recently, there was an article that Australia was the first allied ship, not, of course, in NATO, but, but to, uh, to link and, and plan to get that cooperative engagement capability for their, for their warships. And we're now seeing Canada do the same. Now, of course, for ships that do not have um, 
uh, that, that cooperative engagement. There's still linkage linkages that we do and, and uh, you know, the, the multiple links. And, and we're also, of course, the big thing to remember is by training and exercise together, we build those bridges, we build those links so that we are able to work together. So right now we have uh, Norway and Spain um, as uh, carrying the Aegis uh, on, their, on their warships. Of course, Canada in the future, and then uh, Spain is also looking at a new fleet, uh, a new fleet of of uh, frigates that will also have the Spy Seven uh, um, combat system as well. And I think those are going to be really important for for netting. Um, and we look at some of the British, French warships, uh, and they're very, very capable uh, for air defense. The big challenge on a lot of these warships, I think, is the missile magazines and are we buying sufficient sufficient weapons? That's I think one of the the real challenges that we're facing. And, you know, I'm sure that's one of the things that will come up. You'll hear me harp on throughout uh, the, the podcast is I think that's one of the big challenges we're seeing in the war in Ukraine. And we're also seeing that, you know, in extensive, you know, um, extended combat operations, we use a lot of munitions and these munitions are very expensive and it, they really need to, you, you can't just surge the production. It takes a long time. And I think we need to uh, NATO Navy start to need need to start thinking about this. And, and they are. But it still takes time to rebuild that production line. Uh, that's a great point. Um, how are NATO navies tackling unmanned capabilities? Are there any common unmanned programs that are coming online uh, across the alliance? In other words, that more than one country are, are is buying together, perhaps? Absolutely. When I think of NATO and unmanned systems, I often think of together. I mean, they're going forward together on this. A lot of cooperation. Uh, Netherlands and Belgium are uh, building a, uh, a new mine countermeasures mothership class to be able to deploy unmanned systems. They're working together. And France has recently announced that they are joining that program. So uh, they originally built a mine countermeasures fleet called the, uh, the uh, tripartite class. It, it, it was the Alkmaar in the Netherlands. And it was very successful, and you're seeing a lot of those ships as they retire from NATO navies. They are being sent to um, some of the um, the NATO navies that have less budget, smaller budget, so that they can have a second life in those navies, like uh, you know uh, Bulgaria, some of the you know the um, you know the the uh, countries that were formerly in the Soviet bloc, and I think uh, a lot of those. Are, are making great use of these um, secondhand mine countermeasures ships while the um, NATO navies that have more of a budget are able to acquire the newer ships. Now, those are just the mother ships. We're also seeing a lot of cooperation, a lot of coordination on um, unmanned mine countermeasures, unmanned systems to be able to integrate and work together. I think we're seeing that a lot. Um, and recently uh, in 2022, there were a series of uh, of exercises to test unmanned systems that NATO has done. Um, scores and scores of these unmanned systems. I think the number of one situation was 120 unmanned systems, air, surface, wow. and sub working together um, and, and platforms from different countries uh, to see and work uh, because of course, how you train is how you fight. So uh, making sure that, that that situation is is working. And then of course, NATO also has its own fleet of, uh, of uh, they're called Phoenix. Um, RQ-4 uh, drones, and those, I believe there's five of them, and they operate out of, out of Italy, and they are long-range uh, unmanned air systems that are able to um, conduct 
extensive uh, ISR collection in intelligence surveillance reconnaissance. And they uh, work, of course, along with uh, U.S. naval and air assets and, and our allies and, and help integrate that information. And those are our assets that are jointly operated by NATO. Do those come under the, the, the NATO command in uh, down in Italy, down, down in Naples? Is that the... Uh, I believe they might be through the air side, um, okay. but I, I know that they're operated out of, out of Italy and they are, since 2021, they have been operational. And as you talk to anyone who has been working or seen the kind of information that um, the Global Hawk can provide or the Triton for the Navy, you see, you know, these are similar platforms. And and I think that's one of the biggest lessons learned that we're seeing from the war in Ukraine is how important intelligence is and getting that intelligence where it matters. And of course, um, you know, whether it's hunting submarines with P-8 uh, Poseidon aircraft, which more of our allies are, are acquiring, or uh, submarines, um, you know, uh, wherever it is, being able to get that information and share it where it's needed um, is so important. Um, and having a robust linkages so that uh, resilient linkages so that they can stand up in in the face of of uh, whether it's jamming or or just, you know, loss of, of some of those systems. I think that's that's so important. That's why it's so important that NATO continue to test and work those things. Got it. Um, so, Eric, a lot of folks who served in the. Uh, in the U.S. Navy towards the end of the Cold War will remember that uh, we, we sort of um, relied heavily on our NATO allies to provide and maintain the mine countermeasures capability, that the U.S. Navy did not have a large mine countermeasures, still doesn't, a large mine countermeasures capability. And we, we relied on the allies to have that. Is that still tr true today? And um, do most of NATO's MCMs uh, still reside in, in non-U.S. navies? A lot of the capability for NATO is uh, is residing in, in, in the NATO navies, and they are have prioritized that. It's something that especially the smaller navies are able to help out with. We saw, for instance, um, in the in the Black Sea, we saw uh, Bulgaria, Romania, Turkey, and and of course Ukraine as well. Uh, neutralized about 40 mines in the past year, um, naval mines that have drifted and, and been dangerous to, to shipping. And they've been able to neutralize those um, just in the past year as a result of the, the conflict. And it shows the importance of mine warfare because uh, just imagine, you know, in any kind of larger conflict, just the sheer numbers of, of mines and how challenging that will be to, to clear those. So I think absolutely it is something, uh, especially unmanned, um, you see, as I mentioned before, the, the Belgian and Dutch have invested very heavily in uh, acquiring this new fleet of mine countermeasures motherships uh, with um, unmanned systems. And I think that's a perfect example of that, that kind of work that they're doing together. Um, and I think it, you're going to see that come to fruition as they start um, coming on board in the next uh, in the next few years. It's, it's really going to start paying dividends. Of course, the U.S. also still brings a lot of important uh, mine countermeasures capability to the fight. Um, so we don't want to overlook that. Uh, you know, what I think that that uh, one of the key parts about mine warfare to remember is it's really an area where um, where smaller navies can contribute and where a lot of them have been able to um, find a key strength. And I think that's also true for offensive mine warfare. I think that's an area that's often been overlooked. Um, and when you look at the when for a country on the defensive where, you know, if. If something were to happen and we need to protect ports 
or need to uh, target enemy ports. Uh, offensive mine countermeasure versus defensive mines are both very, very important. Uh, offensive mine operations or defensive. I think they're both very important. And, and uh, NATO navies, uh, it's an area that has been a gap, but they're starting to step up. The United States as well, of course. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, so, Eric, the war in Ukraine has focused a lot of attention on the Black Sea region. Uh, is there any significant naval buildup happening in Romania, Bulgaria or, or Turkey? Um, and, and any evidence of uh, lessons learned from the war that's influencing those Navy's force designs or, or, or uh, uh, shipbuilding programs? Absolutely. We're seeing a lot. Uh, uh, I'll start with Turkey because it's, uh, it's the largest um, of the NATO uh, uh, allies in that region. And uh, one focus for, for Turkey has been uh, developing its indigenous capabilities to be able to design and build its own warships. They're expanding on that. And to do that uh, independently and potentially even uh, become an, uh, an exporter, um, they're having some success with certain munitions and certain weapons. And so we're seeing that as a development. Um, and they are also license building um, uh, submarines and they're license building um, the that uh, Andalou, the, the large air, uh, aircraft carrier uh, amphibious assault ship that we were talking about. And first off, I should apologize also to some of our NATO allies when I butcher the pronunciation of some of their ship names. It's uh, it's always a little challenging um, working with them in print or when they send something and the pronunciation could be a little off. So I, I do apologize if I'm uh, butchering any of their pronunciations. But I do think that uh, um, that when we look at Turkey, that's a perfect example. And I think uh, the other things that we're seeing for a lot of these smaller regional navies and across the board are an expansion of their uh, coastal defense cruise missile capabilities. We're seeing mm -hmm. a lot of coastal defense cruise missile capability expansion, uh, which is very, very important. It's an area where smaller navies can really contribute. And if you look at their location, uh, right on the, uh, you know, uh, in, in some key waterways, they might, some of these navies, um, whether it, you know, uh, be in the Nordic region, you know, uh, Estonia, Latvia, uh, you know, Lithuania, some of those countries that are, are looking, uh, you know, the, the sea vulnerabilities, Denmark, uh, you know, we're looking at a lot of these and uh, we're seeing a great expansion of that. And it's very important to, to see that, whether it is acquiring the uh, Norwegian uh, NSM, uh, Naval Strike Missile, or uh, from, from other countries, we're seeing a lot of capable anti-ship cruise missiles come in uh, and be added it for coastal defense that's going to continue growing um, and what that also means is the older anti-ship missiles such as harpoon are really in a lot of ways being phased out and we've seen 10 nato navies now are planning to acquire the naval strike missile to replace and uh and to in most cases replacing the harpoon anti-ship missile which is just really getting long in the tooth and the naval strike missile is really for those of the listeners and watchers, uh, that viewers that are not completely aware or familiar, it's the Naval Strike Missile is a fifth generation missile. Generation missile. Uh, it's a hundred mile plus range. It's, you know, um, it's uh, got GPS, imaging infrared, um, uh, sea skimming, inertial guidance. Um, it's passive, so it doesn't, it's very stealthy, it's sea skimming, it's survivable, and it's really a, an important addition to the NATO navies. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that in the future. Yeah, I've been at the uh, Raytheon Kongsberg booth at a number of naval shows, the naval, you know, uh, the, the, the surface warfare, uh, sorry, the SNA uh, conference in at West 
and at the uh, Naval Submarine League, et cetera, and seen you know the the full size mock up of the Naval Strike Missile and and had them seen the video and the brief and it's it's impressive and uh, particularly talking to a couple of the Kongsberg engineers who designed and helped build that thing and the, the you know they talk about the stealth. They talk about the, um, the the end game maneuvers that it's capable of making uh, and being able to you know defeat uh, anti ship um, or uh, uh, yeah anti missile um, defenses right so it's coming in against uh, the it was AK six thirty the the Russian version of this close in weapon system um, and it's quite capable against that uh, against that and other systems so. A pretty cool missile, and we're you know the U.S. Navy. U.S. Navy is also procuring that that weapon system. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the ten NATO navies that are uh, are planning to acquire that, and and have been acquiring it for both the LCS uh, littoral combat ships and the new Constellation class, which is going to be a really important asset. There, there's a lot of these uh, new capabilities uh, that are being added. I think that are really changing the dynamic and changing, bringing NATO up to uh, to catch up. Of you know, during the global war on terror, during 2001 to 2011, I, the navies really took a pause in their core missions, and I think that that those core missions, you know, uh, air defense and and anti-submarine warfare, anti-surface, those types of, of operations, resiliency, they really took a back seat to to fighting in Iraq, Afghanistan, and and GWAT around the world. Now we're seeing that catch up. And it's taking some time, but in the past, since about 2012, they've really been uh, new systems and new weapons coming on board. Um, SM6 for the U.S. Navy is, is you know, uh, dramatic improvement. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of new programs, submarine programs that are also um, being seen. You know, uh, one thing I had not mentioned is all three of the NATO nuclear powers, the United States, uh, France and the United Kingdom are building new naval assets of their triad. So we're having the uh, the British are building a the, their new Dreadnought class. The United States has the new Columbia class SSBNs, and the French are also now starting to plan for their next SSBN follow-on. So we are seeing that that they're investing in this for the future. And, and of course, on the SSBN side, but also the nuclear attack submarine and the conventional attack submarines. Uh, that's a great point. Um, Eric, what uh, what are some new technologies? We talked a little bit about unmanned uh, capabilities, um, and you, you mentioned the importance of ISR and how the, the war in Ukraine has just you know uh, emphasized or foot stomped that requirement. But what are some new technologies that are being considered across uh, NATO navies? And and then perhaps you can talk a little bit about some of the gaps that need to be addressed. Absolutely, I think what you one of the things you've seen in uh, in the Ukraine war that you've, we've often heard uh, people say that the, the, that it's the most challenging and it seems that the Russians ha are having so much trouble with is combined arms. And I think that that joint operations of working air, land and sea together as needed is something that NATO is, has, uh, is, is pr very proficient at. And an example of that, one of the, the weapon systems that's often overlooked that's currently in development and I think is really key, especially in the Pacific, but also has some... Um, it could potentially have impact and and uh, in in Europe is that it's called the Rapid Dragon system. It's a really innovative system, and these are uh, essentially um, pods of uh, they that of 
um, cells, missile cells that can be put into C-17 cargo aircraft or C-130 aircraft. Uh, and in the case of C-17, you have dozens of them. In the case of the C-130, you have smaller and you can uh, numbers, but uh, about a dozen, I believe the number is. And, and you're seeing that they would be able to be put into these C-17s or C-130s rapidly uh, dropped out of them into, and uh, they, they carry Lorazm missiles, long range anti-ship missiles, or JASM, uh, Joint Air to Surface Standoff missiles uh, with extended range, hundreds of miles range. And what that does in some ways is enable um, the, the assets to stay out of the fight, that the air can engage against the, the sea, because a lot of times in the beginning, these um, the, it's going to be very dangerous for surface ships. So in some ways you might want to, NATO navies might want to keep their surface ships out of the fight until enemy surface assets are neutralized. That, that might be a situation. And a system like coastal defense cruise missiles when there is range or something like Rapid Dragon where uh, it has a lot of applicability in, in the Pacific and also potentially in Europe where um, you're able to drop large numbers of these anti-ship or land attack missiles. That's a really key area that's it's under development. I think we're, we're seeing that. The big challenge is, do you have enough missiles? And that's a huge uh, thing that I will keep coming back to. Um, I don't think that we do have enough missiles. I think that we're seeing that. It's been acknowledged. I think a lot of these new weapons, they just need to, to enhance production, increase production. And I think that's an area where if we share production across the alliance, across the NATO alliance, it will have a lot of uh, bonuses and a lot of benefits for uh, across, the, across the board. Whether we're seeing that in artillery, which um, for 155 millimeter for land forces, they're able to uh, engage surface ships in some ways. We're seeing land attack cruise missiles. We're seeing, um, you know, even uh, uh, Marine Corps forces are often overlooked, but we saw uh, with Snake Island, the importance of being able to capture an island, uh, being able to deploy weapons on that island, and being able to engage that island across so uh, across the board. So th all of those things, um, I often think of back to the 1982 Falklands War. And I think that's a very useful example on a small scale of what some, uh, what some uh, battles could be like when you look at some of the European islands. So for instance, if you look at um, uh, Gotland uh, near Sweden, which of course is going to hopefully be a NATO ally soon. Um, you know, these are areas that need to be defended um, and, you know, potentially might have to fight off uh, an invasion force or if uh, a small island is captured, might need to be retaken. So I think, you know, uh, we saw that with the Falcons. Of course, with the Falcons, we're talking about uh, thousands of miles away from the United Kingdom. Uh, but in Europe, the, they would be much uh, smaller distances often. But of course, we also have to look at the Arctic. Operating in the Arctic is an, is an area, you know, we're, we're seeing across the board that these are challenges we're, we're facing. And, and we're also developing this new technology, whether it's submarines, new missile systems. Uh, as long as we are able to invest in the, the systems that they carry in sufficient number, I, I think uh, that's, those are some of the mo more important priorities. So, Eric, I want to ask you a little bit more about that rapid dragon system. So, Lorazm or, or uh, uh, you know, other standoff yeah, weapons. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, is that is that a pod system that goes inside the cargo hold of a C-130, or does it strap underneath? How, how does that no, work? No, it goes in the cargo hold, and the, the aircraft, my understanding, would need to have a 
uh, a ramp to the, the, the cargo plane would have a ramp and think of all the countries that operate C-130s and, and uh, C-17s as well. And yep. you, you have all of a sudden a lot of cruise missile carriers. And when in the past you had thought about uh, naval assets and using bombers, as you know, in the Cold War, we had harpoon missiles fitted to B-52 bombers uh, to be able to engage, um, you know, uh, warships. And you're talking about now uh, having cargo aircraft that the range is so, so long that the cargo aircraft would not be in range of air defenses. And right. what that right. does is it allows the cargo aircraft, aircraft to operate as essentially long range bombers or missile platforms. Uh, missile buses, you know, in a way, and they can launch, go back to base, reload, and and all of a sudden you're talking about, um, uh, you know, a fleet of bombers, a fleet of, of aircraft that wouldn't need tanking if they have long enough range, or they just, the missiles have just very long range. The question is, again, are we buying sufficient missiles? Because these are multi-million dollar missiles, and they're really silver bullets in some ways. So being able to do, to, to find alternatives, find alternative methods of production, being able to speed those up, those are key areas I think we have to think about. But I think I have seen very little written about the Rapid Dragon. I really encourage readers to, and, and listeners and, and viewers to, to check into it and see it's been, uh, it's been undergoing tests and it's, it's really something I think to, to be looked at and, and, uh, you know, I think it's very, very innovative and uh, it's, you know, a uh, mix of Air Force and soft, but it also has a tremendous amount of naval implications just because of the Verizon use. Uh, it reminds me of uh, uh, former CNO Greenert's proceedings article, maybe seven, eight years ago, which was maybe longer than that now ago, which was titled Payloads, Not Platforms. Absolutely. Uh, that, yeah, that's a great point, right? It's it's more about that. I think this is one of the significant uh, lessons of the Ukraine war is that it's more about the weapons themselves than it is about uh, the the payload or the platform. I'm sorry, the platform, and the you know that which which makes the ISR your your ability to sense and make sense of the battle space much more important. And so, um, perhaps you know the platform that delivers that payload is is less important, and the the payload itself and the magazine depth becomes more and more important. Uh, well, Eric, this has been a great conversation. I, I thank you for writing again the uh, the NATO update for the International Navy's issue this year. Uh, unfortunately, we're about out of time. Uh, my my guest today has been uh, Eric Wertheim. He's the author of the Combat Fleets column and the author of Combat Fleets book from the Naval Institute Press and the May, May issue of Proceedings, the NATO update. Uh, Eric, thanks for being on the show today. Absolutely. Glad to be here. And thanks so much for, uh, for sharing all this information. And uh, 150 years, congratulations on uh, the Naval Institute's 150-year uh, anniversary coming up soon. Thank you. Thanks for being a huge part of it. Well, this episode, was brought to you, this episode was brought to you by the members of the Naval Institute since 1873. The Naval Institute has fostered the free and open debate that has moved the sea services forward. To become a member, go to usni.org forward slash join. And until next week, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.